what kind of unity is it when it's unity around things we're not allowed to talk about? And right. I think that's a really interesting idea that we can agree. But what if we're agreeing to disagree about everything? Is that is that really unity? Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church in Hilton Head, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Excellent. Yeah, doing well, Nick. Thanks. So, J.D., I can see, is walking through uh, either his house or his church. Matt Kennedy is on the phone in the car. We are all over the place today. Matt, you're in Texas, is that right? Yes. Texas, visiting my parents. Just got finished leading a retreat. And now I'm on the road from Houston to San Antonio after seeing my the, the pastor who basically raised me up to be what I am today. <laughs> so, so it's his fault. <laughs> it's his fault, right? <laughs> That's right. And JD, this was your first day in the office as full-blown rector, right? That's true. Yeah, it was Facebook official yesterday. Yeah. That's right. We had a <laughs> we had a glorious. It was a really sweet final Sunday for Greg as rector, and there was a a big um, tearful goodbye and the dinner that they had from Sunday night. And it just, it, it just was pitch perfect. I was very grateful, you know, for this past month and um, you know, he's not moving. And so um, he'll, he'll lay low for some time and get things settled. But um, it was a real, it was a joyous event, but yeah, today was the first staff meeting that was <laughs> ran and uh, it's a whole new day. So yeah. prayers appreciated. Well, now that you're a rector, you're allowed to look at Matt and me in the eyes again. That's right. That's right. I'm to walk 10 steps behind you both. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, Nikki Gumbel, the founder of Alpha and longtime vicar of Holy Trinity Brompton in England, has retired. This was announced a long time ago. His replacement, the Reverend Archie Coates, was named also a while back. And of course, immediately a, a dredging of his ministerial history was begun. What did he think about this thing or that? What had he written? What had he tweeted? And in what direction might he lead HTB? And according to the dictates of our age, one of the main things many people wanted to know was his stance on human identity and sexuality issues. In other words, was HTB going to become an affirming church under his leadership or not? And of course, there were some who hoped that it would, some who hoped that it wouldn't. And we didn't want to talk about it at the time. We didn't really know very much. Um, it turns out, though, uh, that the Reverend Mr. Coates is one of these guys who, even in interviews that purport in the headline to address the topic, and there's a recent one with a publication called Premier Christianity in England, even in such interviews, Mr. Coates is adept at saying, well, not much. So we wanted to talk about that practice this week, what J.D., I think you referred to as quiet orthodoxy. No, that was what it was described to me as. Oh, recently. really? Okay. Whether... Yeah, by someone who, I, to be fair, someone I, I, I care deeply about and, and respect, but nevertheless, we, we disagreed about this as right. we'll talk. So w- whether or not that's ever led to a good or orthodox outcome and how we might <laughs> want to address those who want to know what we think about this stuff. So what, what did you guys think about that interview? That was some high quality, I mean, it's, it's the old fashioned term is Anglican fudge. I mean, you just can't, 
that takes that takes practice to say nothing for that long. I mean, he really, he was he really, he had a prolonged bit of speech, or I'm not sure. I guess it was speech. He wasn't writing. A prolonged bit of speech, answering like two or three different questions framed in two or three different ways, and each time he came out basically saying, "Well, that's an interesting question. There are people on other side, all sides of this issue, and you can be sure that I have an opinion about this. And one way or another, uh, this opinion is going to be dealt with and hashed out, and we're going to be thinking about it for a long time." That was basically what it was. It was and the woman, the woman that was interviewing him, really, she was coming after him, like you said. I mean, I don't know if it was a hostile interview, but she was not letting him off the hook. And you know, it was, um, yeah, it was quite something to behold. I mean, by the time I, I I ended up reading it, because it's it's from a, a a magazine called Premier Christianity, which you've listened to. There's a podcast by a guy named Justin Briley. It's his that's yeah, my yeah. good English accent. <laughs> but he um he's he's great and he does a lot of really interesting interviews. And so I've kind of been following him and follow the, the magazine. That's and, his, um, his thing's called Unbelievable, right? Yeah, Unbelievable with Justin Briley. But at any rate, um, I thought, you know, they really this this reporter was was not trying to let him off the hook. I mean, she asked, you know, what do you think about it coming? And then he starts saying this. And she said, well, you know, because he ended up saying the first bit was like, we know, there's ambiguity to this. And then she was like, well, are you ambiguous about your answer? And then he proceeds to continue with his. Well, I'm not ambiguous and I'm courageous, but you know, if I whisper something and it's a shout and perhaps, you know, things that I believe in by the end of it, I actually found myself kind of amazed to the point where I, that's thing, I think that's when I copied it and sent it to y'all. I'm just like, this is, <laughs> this is masterful obfuscation because I don't know if he's practiced that speech before, or if it just was that he realized that he wasn't going to say anything. And so he just kept talking until finally he was able to kind of pull himself out, you know, like a, Maybe it's happened to a preacher now and again, um, you know, who's lost the, the the plot. But it was really it was the most clear example of someone that obviously seems to still have the conviction that he knows is not going to be popular and yet can't bring himself for for whatever we can talk about reasons to actually just simply and straightforwardly articulate it. And somehow people are not only allowing him to get away with that, but but apparently encouraging him to do such a thing which is, um, well, appropriate to, to uh, Justin Briley, quite unbelievable to me. But there we are. I mean, I found myself relatively well described. I feel like until very recently, I would have made the same kind of argument about public pronouncements and not being sure of the value of them. But I, I my, my reading of the interview, and you, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't he even say or at least imply that he has similarly refuse to answer this kind of question, even in sort of interpersonal relationships inside his own church that he's like sort of refusing to say. And I, I had always tried to make a distinction between answering a question that I was asked by a parishioner and sort of like making a statement for the newspapers. I mean, I've been pulled out of that by you guys and a few others, I think, to to see the the value in being clear rather than unclear. But I wonder what the perceived value is in trying to hide what you personally really think so much. Well, I mean, HCB has always been kind of on the more let's attract people, let's draw people in. You know, of course, you know, the Alpha Course that Nikki Gumbel uh, put together, and and so one of the one of the pitfalls of that, if you're not absolutely clear 
about where you stand on things, one of the pitfalls of that is that you're going to bring in a lot of people into your church and your your sphere who who have opposing views. And and so if you begin to build a congregation, let's say let's say just 25 percent of the people who go to HTB right now are affirming. And Nicky Gumbel, I mean, for all his, his ways he's contributed to the church over the years, the last, I would say, decade of his ministry, he has not been clear about this at all. So let's say you have like 25% of the people coming in who are, who either are affirming or who think it's no big, no big deal. Well, what happens if this guy comes in guns blazing? What if he comes in and says, oh, well, you know, yeah, if you affirm same-sex relationships, you have stepped outside of the faith. If you're a teacher and if you're a prisoner, you repent of that because here's what the Bible teaches. If you're in those relationships and you repent of those, here's what the Bible teaches. If he did that, he would lose a sizable number of people. And and mm-hmm. and it seems to me that he's more interested in keeping the uh, seats in the pews than he is in being truthful about that, which is, I think, a compromise and a very sad thing. But it, within that fear of, or within that uh, that strategy of church growth, it makes perfect sense. Do people find this kind of intense qualification attractive, though? Like, is this going to keep mean, I, people? I, I, I think, well, I think the way it's going to be, the way I would, if I were him, and I had what I think to be his, his understanding of how the church runs, I would just say, you know what, let's keep our eyes focused on the real things that really matter, like bringing new people in, uh, calling in the out, outcasts. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't need to get caught up on things that are too divisive and that might divide us because the main thing is Jesus and the main thing is, is quote-unquote the gospel. And, uh, and so there's this idea that you can go right on divisive issues and still be able to preach the gospel clearly enough to bring people to That's Jesus. Right. And I, I think it's probably what's going to happen. The problem is, of course, is that you do that and you're, We've talked about this, oh, I don't know, a million times by now. But, but, but <laughs> I think but, this is actually what we talk about in, in every week. <laughs> right, right, right. Because this error is so great, it actually impinges on the gospel. And if you're not clear about it, uh, you're not you're not being clear about the gospel. That's that's the problem. And the, and the people that are drawn to uh, Jesus who affirms is, is are being drawn to a different Jesus. So you're, it's a catch twenty two. Yeah. No, he does say explicitly in here. I mean, they the, the reporter immediately goes into about the Church of England direction and his uh, because it does seem to be the case, unless some some um, weather changes dramatically, that in 2023 this um, this report, this study on uh, whether or not they should bless conduct same sex weddings, it seems to be the case that they're going to go that way. Now, you know, I mean, I'm no expert in the Church of England, and we obviously are hoping for some some change, but. So she acknowledges that it seems like in he's um, in 2023, they're going to make a pronouncement on it. And his answer was, um, you're right. It's going to come to the Church of England. I think it's slated for Senate in the next probably 2023. I think the House of Bishops are talking about it quite soon. I don't know where that'll go. There's a number of issues, obviously. There's scripture and trying to work out the truth. There's unity, which feels important. Yeah, which so feels I think important. That's right. So I think there's different ways of looking at it. Sometimes people ask me what St. Peter's view on it. They really want me to say what Archie's view is, as if that was somehow a bad thing. At any rate, and I generally say, look, St. Peter's is full of a whole kaleidoscope of people, and I'm really glad that we are. I can give my view, he says, but what I prefer to say is, 
actually, I'm not going to say my own view because I want people to be able to be here and to find a unity in holding different views. And he continues on mm. in that path. And there's this problem in that understanding of truth and unity um, that ends up forcing a uh, it doesn't it doesn't allow for a depth of unity. It forces an incredibly superficial and horizontal unity, because if the if the barometer for what can be held in tension are things that we can't speak about because they're too divisive. Well, then you start, I mean, draw me up a list of what is a divisive these days. I mean, you know, it used to be, you can't, you can talk about sports or the weather, but now it's like weather is a, um, is a political uh, divide, you know, whether or not you think you're the, you should use an air conditioner or not. And uh, sports, you know, <laughs> sports is also some sort of political minefield. So what sort of unity are you going to find except for, in an agreed understanding of the truth, and particularly when it comes to biblical, biblical-based unity, um, you have people who apparently are sharing fellowship with those who are either flaunting the scriptures or embracing the scriptures, and that is a recipe for um, a, a very superficial understanding of church that is united, which is we've seen across the world primarily by an aesthetic of kind of like um, um, a worship aesthetic much more than a a theological unity. And those churches we were watching, and we've talked about this before, we're watching real time the parable of the sower um, come through in the form of the LGBTQ plus um, uh, wind and waves, and the birds are eating, the sun is scorching, the roots are being ripped, and the churches that have deep, true biblical uh, unity are the ones that are surviving, um, however much smaller they are uh, than the ones who are, who are following shepherds who refuse to actually articulate and clarify uh, their positions for the sheep. I'm just kind of shocked by the whole thing. I, I want your take on this, Matt, actually, you, especially as somebody who says strong things on the internet, is, I guess people still believe that speech like this isn't utterly transparent, that somehow they're actually hiding what they really think. When it seems to me that when an, an affirming person hears these comments by Mr. Coates, they think, oh, he's a homophobe and he's hiding it. And when somebody who is more, shall we say, defensive of the truth, hears these comments that they, they wonder to themselves, oh, he's wanting to become affirming and just isn't ready to make the announcement yet. Either way, no one hears what he says and wonders, what does Archie really think? Like he's, he's opaque to no one. This seems crazy to me. Right. Well, I, I think it, I, sadly, I think it appears, it, it, it's an appealing stance for a huge swath of people in the C of E, right? Because I mean, that, that's, you have on the one side, the, the, Orthodox that you were describing, and you have the other side, the, the, the proponents of the LGBT thing, but then you have a, a large group in the middle who have a view, maybe in the Orthodox side, but they really, really, really want to stay in the CV. And they really, really, really don't want to leave any, they don't want to have, they don't have institutional chaos. So guys who are saying things like, like, uh, like this one, are, are speaking right to that group. Let's just keep things the same. You know, it's the, the C of E and especially HTV, I think has a kind of homeostasis that's working for them. 
And and if he comes in and says something different, that homeostasis is disturbed, and you're gonna you're gonna have a lot of people leaving from one side or the other. But everyone, I mean, a lot of people really want to hear. We can we can agree to disagree about this about this topic. It it it, it presents a false kind of piece that I think is very attractive to lots of people, and uh, in particular, lots of people where we haven't thought deeply about what the implications are of of, of the error if they even agree if they agree it's an error. And we said many again another thing we said millions and millions of times. <laughs> just saying that this is an issue that we can agree to disagree about, which is what he said, um, is already taking a, a position. And it's already taking a position that sets you outside of Christian orthodoxy, because this is an issue about which we, the Scripture says those who uh, continue down that road without a repentance can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 9. So there's, there's no way, there's no possible way you can locate sexuality in the category of adiaphora of non-essential issues, it's definitely essential. By saying it's not essential, you've taken a position. You've, you've, you've carved out a position. But again, it's a position I think lots of people really, really, really want to take. Yeah, JD, I think you really hit the nail on the head about this a second ago, and I Probably. want you to say, I want you to say more. <laughs> Chances are good. If, yeah. <laughs> if other people want to call me a genius, that's that's up to them. Um, but I really do think that you you hit this, and I want you to say more about it when you questioned what kind of unity is it when it's unity around things we're not allowed to talk about. And right. I think that's a really interesting idea that we can agree. But what if we're agreeing to disagree about everything? Is that is that really unity? Well, apparently you can, I mean, he talks about it. He says that there are all sorts of things you can disagree on, except for, uh, let me see where he says it. Let's see, there's biblical truth and there's unity. There's a mission. There's all sorts. You'll need to come back to me in six months or a year. I don't know whether I'll think differently, but what I may do is think differently about speaking on it, but that's probably where I've got to so far or something like that's what he says. And there's a, yeah, a deep or deep superficiality. That's a profound (laughs) superficiality about, um, about this type of unity, because what it purports, it's like we've talked about before with the creedal, you know, they say, well, I believe that I believe Jesus is Lord. You know, we believe in the resurrection, we believe in the creeds, but the way that they are then watching that play out with respect to its emanation and its actual understanding of the Lordship of Christ um, is so dramatically different, particularly on these issues about human sexuality and identity and marriage, that it's laughable when you say that we agree on these things. I mean, it's, it's really, um, it's and and no one actually believes it. You know, there's not a deep sort of abiding discussion happening in these communities amongst people, you know, who just are so united in their love for Jesus that they're able to have these deep and intense conversations across the aisle on all sorts of things. They're even just though that's what we're about. even though that's what we're constantly being told they're doing. That's right. Yeah. These are there's like deep, small groups with people, you know. Uh, profoundly committed to um, the idea of Christian marriage over against, you know, uh, people who are trying to change it. And they have this, this abiding sense of love and affection for each other in the midst of their actual disagreement. That's not happening. What's happening is the silence on it. And then the uniting and worship is actually producing a, a form of, of a godliness without power, as we hear in the scriptures. I mean, he, he even gets pushed into asking, she says, um, she says this about uh, some Christians are concerned 
that Orthodox teaching around marriage is not being defended. Do you think there's an issue with being quiet about it, back to the quiet Orthodoxy, mm. when there are very strong groups within the church taking it in a certain direction? And listen to this. I do, he says, I take my responsibility as a pastor very seriously, and my job is to pastor my flock. So I think it's really important to be at the very least putting into their hands the things they ought to be looking up and weighing rather than telling them I want to help them. So I do think it's really important that all people speak up and that they will do, I think, in every direction. I just, as you can tell, have a hesitation about my own voice in it because there's a lot at stake. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, what in the world is, one, are you talking about? And two, who is, who is buying this and listening to this and feeling comforted and protected in the midst of, of their lives on either side of the question? I mean, this is, Nick, you and I have talked about this. Uh, well, Matt, and you you have preceded us in this too, but when we were in the same diocese, there were people who were very forthright um, in the Episcopal Church about what they believed and their disagreements with us. And there was actually sort of a, 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 a clarity and a sense of, of um, respect amongst, you know, um, disputants at the very least that existed much more deeply than it did with people who were sort of, you know, weighing the question or weren't entirely sure what they might mean, because no one's actually at this point in the conversation doing that anymore. They're just trying to figure out, as he said, uh, this guy, Archie, um, how to, how to, uh, well, weasel through. I mean, it's all you can sort of say how to, how to wiggle out without getting pinned down on these issues as if that's somehow the Christian thing to do. And it's, it's, as we said before, it's, you know, if you're in a church, dear listener, which I can't imagine you would be if you've listened to us this long, that where you're uncertain about what your par- your your pastor believes, and on top of that, I think you could say this day and age, he is not actively equipping you to um, defend the hope that you have and refute false doctrine, which is one of his callings, according to Paul to Timothy, is to refute false teaching where it is heard then you need to come find another church um, because you're being not protected in a way that, that you have been, been the pastor has been called to protect you. Um, and it doesn't mean that you should have a sermon every single week on this. I mean, you can listen to stand firm every week on this <laughs> if you want. It doesn't mean that every, you know, class and teaching has to be some sort of contentious political discussion. Although in this current world within which we live, um, since everything is political and charged and divisive, well, then we need to wade in with the peace that the world does not understand and the hope and confidence that we'll actually be able to, in the midst of our um, broken sinfulness, nevertheless find hope and unity and redemption in the shed blood of Christ for sinners. Um, And that is where we will begin. That won't be the end. That will be the beginning. And from that, we can actually find um, the the unity that, that Jesus promised. I've got a question for you, Matt. J.D. referred just then to the the refutation of false teachers and the calling that an elder has, as St. Paul says clearly, to protect their flock from error. I have trouble hearing that quote that J.D. just read from the interview and even considering that teaching at all, much less a particular kind of teaching that protects the flock from a certain falsehood. But, you know, St. Paul says that an elder should be able to teach. And I don't hear that as a, as he's refusing to teach. He's not going to tell somebody what he believes the scripture says. How, how do you filter your, your calling to teach through these sort of issues of the day? Yeah. I mean, I think, okay. So I think his, his stance, I said a minute ago, I said, again, it's a pretty clear, 
it's a pretty clear statement, actually, because if he did understand this issue in a biblical way, and he did see uh, those coming into his flock to teach this false teaching about sexuality as wolves, then he wouldn't be hoping they could all have a nice conversation about it. He wouldn't, he wouldn't want to sit down and have a, a wolf on the other side of the table and his sheep in the middle and them having a nice conversation. So, <laughs> so the fact that he's not, he's not, he's not there, I mean, the fact that he's willing to let these conversations go on in his church uh, shows that he does not see the situation as one of wolves versus sheep. Uh, he sees this as something, you know, just like, hey, I can disagree with my Baptist friends about drinking wine or something. Because, and I think that's, that, that's getting to your question, that's what, that's what a pastor has to do. He has to say, okay, um, is this idea that my, is this book that my, you know, women's Bible study group is reading, is this book something that's going to, is this something that's harmless? Is it harmful, but still within the pale of orthodoxy? Or is it uh, straight up heresy? And if it's, if it's, if it's straight up heresy, then, then you have to, a pastor can't just say nothing. If it's harmful, but not necessarily, necessarily heretical, he still has to say something. He has to say, he's supposed to broach the subject and say, look, guys, these are the problems with this book. These are the problems with this idea. Even if this person hasn't crossed the line yet, but this is this is the way, these are the implications of the, the ideas in this book. So I think you should be careful about reading it. In fact, if yep. the Bible study is sponsored by the church, we're not going to have that book read in, in, our, in, in our Bible study. You can do it maybe on your own, but not, not associated with this church. But you have to draw those lines. You have to have those conversations because, because these it's error, regardless of what kind of error it is, it spreads like leaven. I mean, Paul's very clear about this. In First uh, Corinthians chapter 5, it's just a little bit of leaven, spreads the whole loaf, and so you've, you've got to cut off error where you see it, and, and that's hard, but if you don't, you're going to end up in a place where your whole church is eaten up with, with uh, or your whole church is, is compromised, and then when you do find it necessary to take a stand, it's going to be a lot worse than it could have been at the very beginning. You That's, right. The That's right. That's right. Well, and speaking of error, I think I said, said Timothy is Titus, but nevertheless, I get my um, <laughs> pastoral officials mixed up. Um, but no, I agree with you entirely, Matt. I mean, it's, it's funny as you're talking, I've inherited or I've written, I've, I've, I have a church now with a bookstore, which I always dreamed of having, but I do feel the weight of that responsibility in the same way that I think any pastor would, whether it was through a bookstore or through a Bible study or through a book study is that, you know, we have to, if we can't be the, the people who have been set apart, trained and commissioned to be the protectors and, and uh, provider for the, the people of God, well, then who else is going to say that? I mean, I don't expect, um, you know, it's like um, it's the second week in a row I can talk about Mr. Gowers from uh, It's a Wonderful <laughs> Life, you know, because, you know, pharmacist is mixing all sorts of pills and potions. And I have to trust that they're know what's best and what's, um, you know, what's not going to kill me. And I think similarly speaking, from a spiritual perspective, um, you know, we have been vigilant and diligent in training and continuing to stay current as we can um, so that when these things appear and pop up, we're able to say, you know what, Um, exactly to your point, Matt, like this is maybe not the best direction. If you're going to spend all this time, like I would read it cautiously, but it could be an interesting exercise in critical, you know, Christian, um, uh, discussion, but here's a book that you should run from and not really even have, you know, in your house. It's such a, um, a heretical piece of garbage. Um, and, you know, I think that's, that's again, back to this guy, Archie, it's, it's, 
it's really indicative of the entire kind of state of of a certain type. Um, I want to use this word broadly, sort of a broad evangelicalism, in that there is a, a unity, quote unquote, unity at the expense of of truth and doctrine, which which has the appearance um, usually because they're rather large churches, you know, as this appearance of life and vitality. But it's been my experience uh, that when the individual parishioners in churches like this are pushed to um, defend the hope that they have, as um, Peter writes, on any number of issues, not the least of which is sexuality, it doesn't just have to be that. It has to be, you know, um, evangelism for unbelieving people, the existence of heaven and hell, the authority of scripture, the, the proofs of the resurrection. I mean, you go down the list of things that an unbelieving world scoffs at and mocks us for. And uh, which to, for which a Christian should at the very least be at a base level equipped as an adult, um, if only to answer the questions of their children or, you know, or their, or their nieces or nephews. There is an incredible anemia and, and these people are, are malnourished to an almost um, unbelievable degree. And again, I don't know the individual parishioners in HTV and it, obviously a lot of good has come from there. And I wish no ill to that church. And I hope that um, he gets pinned down on it and gets well, I guess it gets out of what he actually believes, that he stands with the truth, that he has to bear whatever sort of scorn he will receive from the unbelieving world. And that on the other side of that, um, he'll be stronger, he'll be steeled, and the people in his congregation will be better off for it. I mean, that's what that would be my hope for him, is that there will be another follow-up interview where they don't let him um, out and that he's, he's called up to the position of authority and responsibility that he has purportedly taken on by his ordination. It's an interesting parallel you draw between what a parent is obligated to teach his children and what a rector or vicar might be obligated to to teach their church. I imagine that Archie Coates wouldn't give a similar answer if an interviewer asked him, if he shares his views on things with his kids, I assume that he feels strongly about passing on what he believes to be true to his children. And it confuses me that there's some line somewhere that makes that inappropriate for his pastoral children, the sheep of his flock that he's been given to care for in much the same way that a parent is given to care for their physical children. Although, I mean, if he, if he really does not think, which I, I think the answer indicates, if he really doesn't think that this thing is poison, then I mean, he may well leave the question open for his children to decide. I mean, if, he, if he doesn't, it, it, may, it may be that he's being very consistent with how he would, how he would uh, deal with the same, the same issue in his, in his home. I, 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 think, I think this is a... This interview is very revealing, not just for what's been going on in HTB, but I think for what I think the probably the tenor of many uh, quote-unquote evangelicals in the Church of England uh, is. I think that's probably where a lot of people are, a lot of clergy are. And I, I think it'll be fascinating to see what happens if, in fact, next year the study returns recommending the church the Church of England become affirming, and it does so. I I wonder what will happen. My guess is that that very few uh, evangelicals will will leave, 
they might, I, 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 I imagine that many will be able to say uh, very similar things to what has been said in this interview and, and still try to maintain that they are orthodox because that's, that's the trend line in the CV. It has, it's been, it's been that way since, since, well, I think since 2003, um, and that's going to continue, uh, continue on. Um, I don't think this is an isolated thing. I think this is an isolated, uh, stance this person's taking. I think it's probably something that many, many, many evangelicals in the CV will be doing. And it's probably worth saying again, again, we keep saying that we've said this a million times, but there's, I guess there's a reason that we keep saying the same things, but it is not loving or caring or compassionate to allow people to remain in their sin. That is, That's right. that is, I, I really, sorry. I don't know what to say. It's the worst thing. It's like letting your kids play in traffic because you think it looks like freedom. That's right. I, I, you're right, but I think the pressure has been so great on, especially on, on guys who really think the most important thing is to get get more people into the church and to have unity in the church. I think the pressure has been so high on on those people to find some way that this sin isn't so sinful. That That's this right. Sin isn't quite so bad, and and if they can find a way to do that, then then. That they, they, I think they think there's, there's going to be a kind of peace and, and, and all of the chaos and all of the anxiety and all of the, all of the business goes away. If they can just find a way to fit this thing in to a quote-unquote biblical framework that they can live, their conscience can live with. So I think that's what they're trying to do. I, don't, I, don't, I, I just don't think that they're thinking in terms of anyone's salvation being at stake here, anyone's eternal life being at stake here. I think they've already moved past that. They're just trying to find a way to make this thing fit into their conscience and into what they would consider a worldview, a biblical worldview that allows for, for the church to continue to grow and to stay unified. Yeah, and, and, it's, and you can even hear it in some of the, even the people that are more outspoken about it, nevertheless, couch the disagreement in terms, you know, like human flourishing terms or, you know, um, better and worse lifestyles and these type of things. Um, in ways that really obfuscate and and euphemize uh, the 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 actual you know what Paul would say the exceeding sinfulness of sin you know I mean and and then so in in the inability to speak clearly about what the Bible has clearly articulated as sin then what happens is not only is that minimized to the great peril of the people caught in it but then all of these other things that the Bible does not speak so clearly about um, the sinfulness of are sort of highlighted as like we'll see we're we're not just um, talking about one issue. We're talking about all these other issues and, and sort of putting them on this equal plane where it's like, well, you know, we have had thousands of years of people um, uh, working with the revealed law of God. And there are certain categories that are prioritized over others um, pre- precisely because of how destructive they can be. And if you don't think that being caught in unbiblical uh, patterns of sexual deviancy are destructive, well, then you've never actually, uh, you, you know, I don't know if you have your eyes closed to what's happening all around us around the world about the confusion that people have about their their bodies, about the dishonoring of themselves with each other, as Paul says, about all of the various ways that this, this uh, supposedly um, innocuous um, lifestyle choice that we disagree with in, in some people's way 
um, actually is devouring people. It's it's I mean, these these communities that are surrounded, these communities that that exist solely for the celebration of of um, sexual deviancy, as the Bible would define it, um, are are vehicles for for physical and moral and spiritual self-destruction. I mean, that's what we're talking about. I mean, this is what C.S. Lewis talks about, the prowling devil, the devils keeps writing to Wormwood about how, you know, it's so laughable that this enemy, you know, God uh, loves these people because all we want to do is destroy and devour them, you know, and that's, that's, you know, they're, they're, they're amazed that God would actually love them. And so we see in this, there's nothing loving about denying to people the truth about who God is and what he has said about these all important issues. And so to, to, to be a pastor, who somehow apparently has convictions on them, just not strong enough to articulate them in any uncomfortable way, is really to abdicate your responsibility to the highest degree, I, I, I believe. And I think it's, you know, um, it was unfortunate to read and, and I'm um, disappointed um, in the interview. I only hope that perhaps there's more to the um, issue and other avenues that, um, that he actually is helping equip and train people um, in the way they should go. Paul does allow for a certain kind of significance for sexual sin. And he writes in first Corinthians six that every sin that a person commits is outside the body. But he says the, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And we don't exactly know. I don't exactly know, I guess how he's differentiating that there. If it's sort of a, worse sin, more of a sin, but he is saying there's a special kind of thing that's going on with sexual immorality and we must flee from it. There can be no quarter given. And this, this sort of thing is just giving quarter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but you know, that I think it's interesting. I this conference this weekend and this conference was attended by people who have been Christian for years, uh, decades, and who have been attending Christian churches. There wasn't particularly Anglican conference. It was people from all different backgrounds and denominations, but, but mostly what we would consider conservative evangelicals. And still, there, you know, we were talking about the sexuality issue, and and I, I we were talking about how important it is to be clear and uh, how important it is to, to speak the truth and 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 still we had so many people saying things like, well, what about, you know, what about love? What about uh, compassion? I mean, doesn't doesn't Jesus love love sinners? And, 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 and even for people who've been in the church for decades, getting this idea that, oh, we need to be really clear about the law so that we can be clear about the gospel because Jesus loves people. That's been that's something in our culture. And I mean, our church culture now, and, and I'm not just talking about. TV. I'm talking about in America, everywhere. Something in our conservative evangelical church culture has gone seriously wrong when people who have been in the church for decades can't hear the word, the, can't hear that we need to be very clear about what the Bible says so that people can repent and believe without then raising the objection about what about love. That's, that's right. That's telling. This is love. That, that, that tells, yeah, exactly. It's telling. It, tell, it tells me that that we have done a poor job all across the board, catechizing our people. You know, you know who does a good job at that though 
are redeemed sinners who have come out of the brokenness and dark, uh, destructive uh, lifestyles who have been confronted and been and have found repentance through the Holy Spirit and have have. I mean, think about like Rosaria Butterfield, for instance, you know, is one example among many. But you think about people who say, you know, you, quote unquote, loved me for 20 years and before somebody, you know, actually spun me around and delivered me from this dark darkness that I was trapped in. And that's what's purported as love in many Christian churches, quote unquote, Christian churches is to is to simply um, commiserate with the sufferer when we at the very least know that there's healing and redemption from some suffering, not all, when the suffering is a result of living at direct odds with um, God's uh, design and, and, and demands for our lives. I mean, you know, it's like people that are caught in, um, you know, cycles of, of uh, contempt will go down the list of the Ten Commandments, you know, and just look at any of the people that live in seething resentment of their mothers and fathers their entire lives. You know, I mean, we don't we don't we don't affirm that, you know, we, we can't necessarily control it, but we can certainly re- uh, preach the law, you know, and then we can talk about how repentance comes about people that are uh, unbelievably covetous or envious or, you know, unrepentant gossips. I mean, you go down the list and you say this is this is these are serious issues, not because we're legalists or we're pietists, but because we're Christians and we've been delivered. And we we have, like the Apostle Paul, walked and res- and resemble um, the life of unbelief and darkness long enough to to run back to the light. And, and if even if necessary, be dragged back by faithful preachers who um, have the temerity and the courage to um, preach both law and gospel. And I think, you know, 20 years ago. Um, I was much more trying to be um, hip and cool. And, you know, I was like Schleiermacher um, 2.0, you know, like maybe maybe I'll be um, cool enough to keep getting invited to all the right uh, parties and make the right clubs and write someday for the New Yorker or whatever. And now, you know, I've repented or have been given to repent uh, because um, that that way is um, the wide way, not the narrow way. (laughs) That's that's the way. That's Vanity Fair, right? For the pilgrim, that is not the narrow door. Um, and Vanity Fair seemed to be a very nice place for everyone, except for the Christians that were there in Pilgrim's Progress. And so I, I resemble that um, that remark, and I am grateful for the Lord and His mercy to have called us out of that, um, and am hopeful that um, that somehow we can encourage others to do the same. We kind of said earlier, but I want to say it even more clear, truly, and reiterate it. Um, if you are in a church and and your pastor has never spoken a word about sexuality, not just talking about homosexuality, talking about any kind of sexuality, that's a problem. It, 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 I would not necessarily say you know, leave your church, but but it, it, it would it would lead me as a Christian to wonder, you know, what is my pastor. Does my pastor love me? Does my pastor <laughs> love my love my children? Because because I want a pastor who's going to be able to tell us what God thinks about things, and especially things that are so so in our face in our culture. My kids are going to public school. Maybe my kids are going to uh, have friends who are who are all over the place sexually. I, I need I need someone to speak clearly to them. And if your church is unwilling to do that, you're you're in a dangerous place, really. You want someone who is able and willing to take the Word of God uh, and apply it to you, to your children, to your family, 
um, especially around those issues that are the most divisive and difficult and dangerous um, in our day. And thank God there's, you know, if, if, uh, if you are in a church where that's, where that's happening, where you have a pastor who's, of course, not harping on it every single Sunday, but whenever there's a, whenever it comes up in the text or whenever there's a question about, uh, about uh, truth or error, uh, uh, that your pastor is not afraid to say, to speak the truth, um, but then not just leave it with the truth about the law, but also to follow that up with the, with the free offer of the gospel and that anyone who's caught up in sin, no matter what it is, um, can be assured there's forgiveness and mercy and eternal life at the foot of the cross. Amen. This is love. Not that we loved God or much less quote unquote loved each other in some pretend way, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Well, thank you for listening to the Stand Firm podcast this week. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. And we are getting your emails. We're going to get to a mailbag episode one of these days, we promise. Uh, Or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. Safe travels, Matt. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 oh